So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Good evening. If you are a guest, I want to give you my hearty welcome. Full disclosure, I am not a preacher. So please don't expect me to live up to the lofty expectations set by Blake, Tyler, Sam, Mateo, and JD. That said, I am honored by and grateful for the opportunity to explore with you one of my favorite sermons in the scriptures. Paul's sermon before the Areopagus from Acts 17. Like they say, if you're going to steal... Steal from the best. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. All right, immerse yourself in the text with me. Let's mentally transport ourselves to the ancient setting, Athens, Greece, circa 51 AD. It's difficult to overstate the impact ancient Greece has made on the world to this point. In culture, education, philosophy, and art, Greece has already left an indelible mark that will continue into modernity. Athens is Greece's leading city. Herein, we find Paul, who never shrinks from the stage, but rather prefers to seize the opportunity wherever he goes to share his passion for Jesus. Acts 17.16 tells us that Paul is moved by the abundance of idols in this metropolis and takes to the synagogues and marketplaces to reason with the city's residents. 
He has the occasion to visit with the so-called Epicureans and Stoics. These are two prominent rival schools of philosophy. And they are sufficiently intrigued by Paul's ideas that they bring him to the Areopagus. This curious name means Hill of Ares. Y'all knew I couldn't resist going into some of the history, right? Hill of Ares, the Greek god of war who the Romans call... Mars, that's right. The Areopagus is a rock formation northwest of Athens' Acropolis, where it is said Ares was tried by his fellow Greek gods for the murder of Poseidon's son. Areopagus also refers to the governing council of Athens, who in former times convened at this location. By AD 51, the Areopagus tries cases involving homicide, appropriately, arson, and, interestingly, religious matters. Now, full disclosure, the historical record is unclear, at least to me, as to whether the council still meets at the actual hill at this point in time, or if they've moved to their shiny new digs in the marketplace, but regardless of the specific location, Paul now finds himself faced with a highly interested and equally intelligent audience an audience that reflects some tendencies of the local culture that really stick in Paul's craw. Namely, a belief in multiple gods and the practice of reducing their gods to the images and ideas of humanity. Paul begins his sermon in a very clever way. Rather than drawing from the Hebrew scriptures, which likely would have been meaningless to the Athenians, He draws from the nuanced local color of Athens itself. Paul begins by referencing the altar to an unknown god. Paul's going to fill in the blanks. The god who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Paul begins his sermon where all things find their beginning. The Lord of all creation. Psalm 148, 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. All creation praises Jehovah, the creator, and his being the creator is sufficient to warrant that praise. Moreover, He did not settle for creating rubbish, but rather awe-inspiring beauty and brilliance. We marvel at the constellations, galaxies, and nebula like this one dotting our sky. Yet the most astonishing observation is that there are breaths to take. Isaiah 45, 18. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create in a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Long before the space age, the ancients understood the remarkableness of an inhabited world, and rightly so, and I should give a trigger warning, 
it's about to get nerdy up in here. <laughs> Consider what must be for us to exist. It, this, won't, this will be relatively painless, okay? Carbon-12, I, I know, but hang with me. Carbon-12 has an excited state at just the right energy, and I won't even tell you that it's 7.7 .7 MeV, to enable helium-4 and beryllium-8 to fuse in order to form carbon. A side effect of this process is that carbon-12 will itself fuse with helium-4 to form oxygen. In other words, the nuclear and the electromagnetic forces are, and I'm going to use an editorial word here, tuned, to enable large amounts of carbon and oxygen in our universe. How convenient. The cosmological constant has a very tiny value. How tiny? Well, if you use natural units, it's 10 to the minus 122. So that it has an appreciable effect only on structures larger than a billion light years in diameter. In other words, if it weren't that way, stars couldn't form. That'd be a problem, right? All right, let's talk the density of the universe. I know, so what you've been waiting for all, all evening, right? <laughs> all right, here's a great quote on the density of the universe. The precision of density must have been so great that a change of one part in 10 to the 15, in other words, 0.0000000000001% would have resulted in a collapse, or a big crunch, if you will, that occurred far too early for, for life to have developed. Or, going the other way, it would have been an expansion so rapid that no stars, galaxies, or life could have formed. Okay, Put it this way, if the degree of the precision would be like a blindfolded person choosing a single lucky penny in a pile large enough to pay off the United States national debt. Okay. But maybe that's all too mathy for your taste. Fair enough. All of this is to say life is precious and unique. In our amazing universe, life is the exception to the rule. Now, it's probably not inarguable proof for a creator, but inarguable proof is probably incompatible with faith anyway. And while it does seem to me persuasive evidence for a creator, this is not really my point this evening. By faith, we already believe in our creator. My point this evening is this. His creation tells us the kind of creator he is. God is completely self-sufficient, and he could have been pleased to build a universe incompatible with life, or just sit on his laurels for eternity, never bothering to produce aggravations like me. Creation, however, points to a creator who values life, who purposely fashioned his world, our world, to reproduce and sustain the life he breathed into it. Now, who would do such a thing? Only a creator who loves and values the life of his creation. As the psalmist declared, this is a creator worthy of our praise. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants." Having established the self-sufficient creator, Paul pivots to the created. Paul's message is that creation draws all its being from the creator. Every nation descends from a single individual made of God, inhabiting land surveyed by God's eyes, using clocks wound by his fingers to live lives with the primary purpose to seek him. Now remember Paul's audience, right? These are not Jews who grew up with the heritage of being God's people, God's chosen people, rather. These are Gentiles of Athens. Yet apparently, in 51 AD at least, their cultural tradition held that the living beings on this planet held a unique relationship to the Creator, whoever He was. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has made everything appropriate in its time, He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Brothers and sisters, let me propose to you that curiosity is a God-given trait. He put eternity in our hearts, but he didn't include the solution manual. Contrary to the constant cultural clamor, our hearts and what they contain are not, of themselves, the answers. But our hearts do speak an important truth. We're missing something. We are incomplete. Our hearts burn with a desire to search, to seek for something around us or above us to complete us. The hearts of children seek their parents. So it is with our Heavenly Father. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. Okay, this has been a little academic so far. So let's ask what it means practically for our actual lives. Malachi 2.10, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? In the context there, Malachi is speaking about the people of Judah, but it's not a stretch to me, at least, to apply the message to the church. If we are all created of God, what right do I have to mistreat you? Well, put it another way. If my neighbor is made in God's image, same as I am, how can I lift a finger in treachery toward that precious life made in my Creator's image? Not that I had anything to do with my being made in the first place. And, you know, if I didn't create myself and my neighbor didn't create herself, then how can I ever feel contempt for my neighbor? Let's ask another question. What defines me? Where I was born? 
Those of you who know me know I'm a proud native of Houston, Texas, home of the world champion Houston Astros. Am I anxious to marry my identity to everything associated with my native city? When I was born, now I recognize that from a standpoint of human, much less cosmic history, I live in a most remarkable time. Did I actually have anything to do with that? Mm, What I do for a living, there's one. I love getting a glimpse into the fundamental structure of the universe's most basic building blocks. I heartily encourage anyone, and I mean anyone, who thinks that that almost sounds like not the most revolting thing you've ever heard of, to consider taking a deeper look into it. But while my colleagues and I are, are great at a few things, at least they are, there's a great deal that we miss. And anyway, there will be a day when I hang it up. So what will I be then? What about this one, who my ancestors are? I'm a typical American, and by that I mean I have world wars being fought within my bloodstream. I'm the great-grandson of German immigrants on my father's side. That's where the whole Drachenberg thing comes from. (laughs) But one of my mother's ancestors was a mayor of Canterbury. That's in England, for those of you who slept through geography. And that sounds great, right? But it turns out that one of my oldest ancestors is the illegitimate son of a German peasant girl, and the Swedish military officer conscripted to live with her family during the Thirty Years' War. Now that makes a great Netflix movie, but it's not exactly conversation for polite company, right? All right. How about what set of chromosomes I've got? I admit this one's tough. Because Genesis 127 says, male and female, he created them. And I can't deny that much of my physical makeup is defined by the fact that I am a man rather than a woman. Yet, is the legacy of male kind the epitaph I want printed on my tombstone? I think you get the point, right? And please don't miss this. All of us, all of us, have histories and experiences that contribute to defining our earthly station. And we should learn and respect and even enjoy each other's stories. I've done with y'all. But when it comes to who we are, our identity, I need to hear Paul's words on Mars Hill. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. With all due respect, I argue that our identity is made in God's image, period. In their proper context, the art and thought of man give us much. That said, we got to take care. We got to remember Paul's other message to the Romans. In 122, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Would we exchange the glory of an identity with Christ for the corruptibility of an identity of the world? On what planet could this be considered a good trade? And don't misconstrue this as a critique of my heritage. I'm grateful for my heritage, warts and all. 
And the irony is that the reason I can be grateful for my earthly heritage, warts and all, is that my identity is child of God. The less flattering elements of my earthly history do not define me. Rather, when viewed through the lens of Christ, I see new images of God's providence and grace and redemption. Do I have scoundrels and scandals in my family tree? You bet. Praise God for a covenant of grace where the sons are not punished for the father's sins. Praise God for a covenant of grace that redeems even scoundrels and, and, and scandals, that cleanses my own sins by the same sacrifice that forgave my father's sins and that will forgive my sons. Is it possible also that some of the fracture in our society, our churches, is because we identify too deeply with the images formed by the art and thought of man, rather than simply allowing child of God made in his image to be our identity? I'm going to meddle a little bit. If I learn that a brother votes differently than I do, can I still have a rational conversation with him? If I can't, could it be that I'm investing too much of my identity in my political affiliation or lack thereof? If I learn that a sister disagrees with me on some matter relating to race, or gender, or some other hot-button issue, is my knee-jerk reaction, before I've even talked to them, to accuse them of racism or sexism or wokeism or some other ism? If so, could it be that my identity is too deeply invested in my sociology? If I struggle to plant at a church because the congregation has too many or not enough PhDs, MDs, JDs, or MDivs, could it be that my identity is too deeply invested in my image formed by human skill and thought? And, and, and I want to be clear, I mean, politics, sociology, education, obviously, I think these are valuable tools that can be used positively. We should give thought to them and do them well. But they are ultimately grounded in mortal wisdom. May I humbly suggest that we are getting a look at what happens when we base our identities not upon being children of God, but rather on images formed by human skill and thought. Do you like what you're seeing? But we can't leave it there. I believe Paul's message is not negative, but profoundly positive. What does it look like when we identify as children of God? Let's let the Spirit speak for itself. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Philippians 2, 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires.
So, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Okay, my next question is so dumb, only a professor could think it's worth asking. But you made it this far, so bear with me just a little further. Is it fair for God to judge? Well, hang with me, though. Did the scripture not say that he wanted us to feel around or grope for him and perhaps find him? Does that not imply the possibility of not finding him? I mean, given this is all his idea, isn't it unfair for God to judge us? All right, you maybe think this is a simple answer, but I believe that answer reveals something profound about our Father. Okay, first of all, does God have to be fair? Okay, Romans 9.19 says, You will say to me then, what, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Okay, so short answer is no. That's the thing about being the creator. You get to create what you want. Don't like God's universe? Make your own. Clearly, though, that does not satisfy the need that prompted the question. But maybe questions like, what can God do, are not as potent as questions like, what did God do? Look again at Acts 17.27. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Could God have just dropped us off and said, good luck working it out yourself? Yep, sure could have. Did he? No way. He created us to seek him and find him. And he even stays close to us. How close? Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which is translated... God with us. Through whom will God judge the world? Emmanuel, God with us. He is a righteous judge. How? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. God's judgment through Christ is righteous because Christ is the righteousness of God, enduring our temptations and weaknesses, but without sin, then becoming sin on our behalf, redeeming us as our sacrifice. This is paradox city. Don't miss this. I mean, drink it in and savor this tension. Divine becoming carnal. 
righteousness becoming sin, omnipotence becoming weakness, immortal becoming mortal. If you get it, explain it to me later. Whatever God asks us to do, it will never be as difficult as what he's already done. Call me out of my comfort zone? Give up something I like. Assign me a role I don't wish to play. Deny me a lifelong dream? If God can forsake his own nature to the point of becoming sin on our behalf, what can't he righteously ask me to do? Okay, now, none of this is easy. I doubt any of us in this room have this down yet. But don't despair. Let's hear the words of John in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Getting this right is not what makes us children of God. We try to get this right because we are children of God, and that is what children do. And together, as the family of God, day by day, by his grace, we draw closer to that goal. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul's cunning. He knows the idea of resurrection probably ends the session anyway, so save it for the last. And maybe he can intrigue enough people along the way that some will stick. So, we've heard that God is a self-sufficient creator, but chooses to be life-breathing, sustaining, and loving to the life he gives. And because of this, We draw our worth, our being, our identity from him and him alone, and he alone is worthy of it, and he secures us. Everything else falls short, leaves us wanting. But secured in our identity in him, we play roles in this life in the way our creator intends. We love God, we love each other, and when we fall short, we repent, because he is right to judge having lived our human life, having died for our sins, and having risen from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ always demands a response. And Paul certainly gets a variety here. So let's make it personal. Who are you in the story? Some of you are Paul, having courageously followed God's call into strange arenas to proclaim his message, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for stepping out, not on the basis of your own strength, but by the power of his spirit living in you by his grace. Some of you are sneering this evening, and I appreciate your honesty. I respect you for being here or listening online. I gotta warn you, though, the thing about God's word is that it does what he wants, long after the speaker has finally, finally closed his mouth. So if you find yourself unexpectedly bothered by some new questions, You are always welcome to discuss these with any of us, one-on-one, in a group, whatever you wish. Some of you maybe are not convinced, but you'd like to hear another round. And you are always welcome, too. 
If it's not already your custom, maybe give our Bible classes a shot. It's a bit of a different setting, it's more interactive, it's easier to ask questions. You're always welcome here too. Perhaps though you are Dionysius and Damaris. You've decided that you believe and you're ready to join the family of God in our ongoing effort to seek him and know him as he calls us his children. Some people try to overcomplicate the next steps, but here we encourage you simply to follow the same paths of the believers in the New Testament. After believing the gospel, they would resolve to put, on, put their old life behind and start fresh, living out the good news of Jesus in daily life. They would publicly confess their belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They would then be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus' name, from which Scripture tells us, from reading these Scriptures, we understand is the point where Christ washes away our sins in His blood, and the Holy Spirit of God fills our hearts, marking us as his children. You come up out of the water a new person with a new life in Jesus. Now, you won't live it perfectly. I haven't. None of us have. But that's not what it's about. We aren't saved because of how good we live. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. When we mess up, and we all do more times than we want to admit, he is our constant advocate before God's throne. Our prayers, even, are communicated directly by the Spirit with words we can't even express. And finally, you have a family. Us, yes, but not just us. The family of God has no walls, no city limits, no borders, no boundaries of time, composed wholly and entirely of those redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. So whatever it is you need this evening, everything's ready. And we are ready to serve you, however we can. As we sing this next song, just come forward and let us know. Jesus' invitation is yours. Let's now stand together as we sing a song of encouragement.